we're looking at this little wonderful book called Joel. We'll get the big picture in today's message. And with all of these messages, we have a question that helps to guide our thoughts as we look at these books. Today's question is, whom will God save? Whom will God save? Very important question. Because in reality, there is much we need to be saved from. Whom will God save? There's much we've done wrong. We're born sinners. We sin every day of our lives. And because of that, there is much we need to be saved from. According to the Bible, God made the world. Therefore, He is the world's rightful judge. The Bible also teaches that God made human beings in His image, which means that He designed us to reflect His good and holy character. But sadly, we have not done that. We don't accurately reflect God's good and holy character. We are fallen. We have sinned against God, and we continue to sin against God, and we do things we shouldn't do, and we don't do things we should do, and therein lies the problem. Because we're sinners, none of us deserve to be saved, and we can't save ourselves. (laughs) As the Bible says, we've all fallen short of God's glory. So we need God to save us, because we can't save us. God needs to save us. But whom will God save? It's a very important question. I hope you're not a universalist. Uh, There are some people who are universalists, and they believe that God's going to save everybody. God won't punish people in the lake of fire forever and ever. God won't do that, some people say. Will he save you is a more personal question. Well, the book of Joel will help us understand this most important question. So let's look to this book to see what we can learn about salvation. There's some wonderful truths we can learn from this book. And so the first question we're going to look at today is obviously in regards to this very important question of whom will God save? So we're talking about salvation here, but as we talk about salvation, the first question I hope that comes to your mind is this, saved from what? Saved from what? What do I need to be saved from? Well, at the beginning of chapter 3, the Lord speaks against the nations, not just His own people of Israel, not just Israel, but He's speaking about about many nations here in chapter 3, and and this is where we're going to begin our study today, okay? Now, I hope you firmly believe that this is God's breathed word. These are the words from the living God, and all Scripture is profitable. Because we're going to look at a lot of verses from this wonderful little book today. All right, let's start reading in verse 1. Amos, or sorry, not Amos, Joel, chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy as payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. 
Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the coast of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head. Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions, also the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your taliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah and they will sell them to the Sabaeans to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. We'll stop there for now. I just want to point out a few things from these verses. First of all, according to verse 13 there, we see that God describes the nations as a crop that is ripe with wickedness, and it's literally crying out for the harvest of judgment. And these words are very serious here because... They were the words of condemnation, not just from God's prophet, but these words are, are leveled from the Creator Himself against His creatures. God as judge is calling the nations to account here. So in verse 9, God tells the nations there to prepare for war. How could these people defend themselves against God? kind of a silly thought when you think about it. God's calling these nations, prepare for war. They can't defend themselves against God. What would all the swords and the spears in the world accomplish against God? Of course it would accomplish nothing. It would accomplish nothing, and that is the point. We have no defense against God when God charges us. There is no defense. Verses 9 through 11 here initially sound like a challenge to assemble for a contest. But as we learn in verses 12 through 15, remember, you always take verses in context. In verses 12 through 15, they're, they're really a call to assemble for judgment. This contest is, is so one-sided, if you will, that the prophet Joel has to change the image from military action, if you will, to an agricultural action. The days ahead won't look like the clashing of two mighty armies coming against one another. In fact, I've given you a picture here of, of a farmer taking a sickle 
to the, to the grain that is ready to be harvested. That is the imagery the prophet Joel has switched to. It's an agricultural one. And it's going to look more like the, the farmer, if you will, taking his, his cutting instrument, the sickle, through the grain. Or another imagery here is the vine dresser crushing the grapes. It's not two mighty armies coming against one another. If you look at uh, chapter 3, verse 13, you see where it says, To put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. So their wicked deeds, God is saying, these wicked deeds are greater and they're more serious than anybody even first realized because look what the Bible says there in verse 13, the vats overflow for their evil is great. What is happening here? God is literally calling the nations together for the purpose of judgment. Look at verse 12. Let the nations be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I, that's God speaking, I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. That's why He's calling them. So God's calling the nations to judgment. And when God summons these nations to judgment, he, He's not just doing this politely. He, he's, this is not some you know, extension or invitation you know, that they can just casually accept or decline. No. <laughs> when God gives a summons here, you can't decline it. Nobody can decline it. No nation can decline God's summons. He gives an unavoidable summons. What's going, or I should say, who is going to receive the summons here? This unavoidable summons will be given to all nations. Look at verse 14. In fact, it says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This unavoidable summons is to all nations. Why have these nations gathered? Well, it says here these, valley, these nations have gathered to hear God's terrible judgment on them. It is not a place where they must make a decision. Now, some interpreters have taken this to say the nations get to decide. No, the nations don't get to decide. This is where God is going to give them His decision. They're just there to hear his decision. In fact, it's God's final verdict. And so when we read this passage, we need to think of a court. And I've given you a picture of a courtroom here. Literally, the court is in session. God is the judge. He is the one who has made the decision. And guess what? The judge has weighed the evidence. The defendants stand to hear the judgment. In the, we, we, as we see here, as the judge reads his verdict to the defendants or the nations, and he pronounces his judgment, and once he does that, they cannot make an appeal. There is no appeal in God's courts because his judgments, by the way, I'll remind you, are always right. They are without error, and they are final. And so my friend, one day, I'll remind you, the Bible says one day, you yourself, will find yourself in a time and a place where all the guessing and the doubting will finally be over and God's going to say, no, no, 
One day we're all going to stand before the judge of the universe. Everyone will. You will stand before the judge of the universe. You will answer for what you have done in your body on this earth. And so I ask you the question, my friend, are you ready for that day? You will not be able to avoid it. So not only will God bring His judgment on the nations, He's going to bring, his, uh, bring it upon His own people as well. Okay? They're not going to escape the judgment either. And, and as we turn to chapter 1, we're going to see that God's people have found themselves in trouble. But the trouble is a present trouble, but they're also faced with the prospect of future trouble. So you see both aspects here in chapter 1, right? Okay, there's present trouble and there's future trouble to come. First, let's look at their current trouble, which, by the way, happens to be invading locusts. And if you don't know what a locust is, I've given you a picture of one here. Now, <clears throat> that's just one. But the imagery that we see here is we have swarms, millions upon millions of locusts invade. And when they do, it's not a pretty picture. Because the locusts eat everything that's green. Now look at chapter 1, verse 1. Joel 1, verse 1 says this, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days? Or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locusts left, the swarming locusts have eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the crawling locusts have eaten. And what the crawling locusts left, the consuming locusts have eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine. For it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off in the house of the Lord, the priests mourn who ministered to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. And stop there. Well, if you're discerning as we read through this, you'll notice that chapter 1 reads as if Joel is trying to convey two ideas at the same time. And if you're thinking that way, I think that's the proper way to interpret this chapter. Joel mentions the, the locusts here. But he also uses the language of an army farther on in that chapter, doesn't he? And so you see, Judah was experiencing a horrible infestation of locusts in the first 
half of chapter 1 is describing the destruction that locusts would bring to any nation. They eat anything that's green. It would destroy the trees and the, and the crops, and therefore the animals would have nothing to eat, and the animals would die, and then they would have no grapes, they would have no olives, no, no pomegranates, you name it, everything would die, and eventually people would start dying. It was so bad that verse 7 talks about two symbols of peace and security in the ancient Near East. In, in the ancient Near East, these were things that, well, they were good things. They were symbols of security and peace, and the Bible describes them as just being laid waste. So while this infestation of locusts was a real event, we shouldn't spiritualize it like some commentators do. I think it was a real event. They're real locusts, and they did real devastation. But it also foreshadowed another event, which is the theme of the book of Joel, and it is called the Day of the Lord. If you look at chapter 15, uh, Joel mentions the Day of the Lord here. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are in shambles. Barns are broken down, for the grain has withered. How the animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. O Lord, to you I cry out, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and a flame has burned all the trees of the field. The beasts of the field also cry out to you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. Try to picture this happening in New Zealand. This was a real event in a real place. In the face of such devastation, Joel was prompted here to think about God's ultimate purposes and to think about the end of the world. You know, you might call it apocalyptic kind of thinking. He may have even been wondering, is this the end of the world? I mean, things were so bad. You might say his response was similar to how many people in Christchurch have been responding to the earthquake find it interesting the Holy Spirit would would prompt this particular message to come along the very week that God would send an earthquake to, to Christchurch. I've given you a picture here of one of the, the scenes from Christchurch. You think about that, that horrible earthquake. It reminds me earthquakes have a way of shaking our world up so that we get our, our eyes off our own little world. It, it certainly caused me to get my eyes off my own little world. Uh, we, we tend to be focused on our, our little teeny pathetic little lives and our little house and our little job and whatever we do. We don't think about the bigger world, the bigger picture of what God is doing. So earthquakes can be a good thing in that sense. They they, they, they help us to see that these things that we hold so dearly to can crumble very easily and quickly. Witnessing disaster helps us realize the things we too often build our 
lives upon are not as certain as we think. When God starts shaking the earth underneath us, you start realizing, whoa, you know, (laughs) this life I thought was solid is not so solid. And as the prophet contemplated the ruin brought by these swarms of locusts, he could see an even greater devastation beyond it, a devastation that was so complete it almost looked like an uncreation, as if God was reversing his original creation. Sometimes that's what the Creator does. Sometimes the Creator himself destroys his own work for the sake of judgment. By the way, I'm not saying that God is bringing judgment in crisis. Don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I don't know God's purpose for that earthquake. I'm sure he does have a purpose, but I don't know what it is. But sometimes God does destroy his work for the sake of judgment. And what begins as an illusion in verse 15 here of chapter 1 is really declared loud and clear in chapter 2, so please turn there if you're not there already, because God is, is, is declaring loudly and clearly what, what his purposes are. And in fact, in verse 1, it's, he, he literally says, blow the trumpet. Picture a trumpet being blown loudly and clearly in your ear. You cannot mistake it here. Look what God says in chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the, na- or the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots, over mountain tops they leap, like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color, They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column, though they lunge between the weapons. They are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the widows like a thief. The earth quakes. Before them the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Let's stop there. We see the shift from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Almost feels like the Lord is saying, you haven't seen anything yet, as if chapter 1 wasn't bad enough. Did you notice who is behind all the destruction here? Did you notice who is the subject of the sentences, who is doing the action? 
It's God. God is the one who is in charge. He is the one performing the action here. My friend, our world today has little or no comprehension of a God who would do such things. To most people, God is whatever they conceive of Him. And most people want to conceive a God who is nice and sweet and good and could never possibly do these sort of things. And so what they do is they lump all these nice and sweet things together like they're building something out of Play-Doh. And they call that God. May I remind you that Scripture provides a deeper understanding of who God is? Certainly God is good, my friend, okay? Don't get me wrong. Certainly God is love, and He is uh, many, many other things. That should be obvious, but what is good and what is uh, uh, what is not good is not always obvious to us. And your idea of good may not be the same thing as what God thinks of good. Therefore, what we need to do is, in a way, we need to recalibrate our understanding of what good is according to what God reveals in the Bible. The book of Joel is not a good book to read if you simply want reassurance that the, the world is all good and, and contains nothing bad. If you want that, the book of Joel is not the book for you. It's not going to affirm these kind of false ways of thinking. Because in reality, the world is not all good, and the world's not getting better, and there is no spark of divinity within everybody. That's not reality. Simple optimism in the face of such sin is nothing more than ignorance. And may I remind you, because some people think this, the reality is that ignorance is not bliss. Have you heard that phrase? <laughs> ignorance is not bliss. The Bible is clear on this matter. The reality is we've all sinned, as Romans says, and we have fallen short of God's glory. He has a standard of perfection and holiness, and we don't meet it. So we cannot begin to understand salvation until we understand what we must be saved from. Okay, we come back to the original question. What must we be saved from? Well, fundamentally, it's not all the difficult circumstances of your life. That's not what you need to be saved from. Yes, we all have difficult circumstances. We're, we deal with pain and suffering and trials of various kinds. We all do. That's not what you need to be saved from. We must be saved from our sin and its consequences. What are the consequences of sin, you might ask? Well, the short answer is the judgment of God. The judgment of God is the consequence of sin. In a very real sense, we need to be saved from God Himself. He's the thing you need to fear the most. So given our predicament as convicted sinners, Joel points toward hope by answering a second question for us here. What is salvation? What is salvation? Now here is one of the beautiful things I love about God. Not only is he committed to justice, he's also committed to mercy. God is committed to mercy. He's, he will not only judge his people, he's promised to save his people. So what does that salvation look like, you might ask? What is salvation? What does it look like? Number one, 
we see here in this book that God rescues his people from his enemies, from their enemies, sorry. Look at chapter 3. God rescues his people from their enemies. Chapter 3, the last part of verse 16 says, But the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. God rescues his people. If he chooses to. He doesn't always do that. He doesn't have to. (laughs) He has purposes in what he does if he chooses to make us martyrs. Number two, God promised to restore his people to prosperity. He promised to restore his people to prosperity. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 18. You see a wonderful picture of returning to prosperous days here, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you approach among the nations. But I will remove far from you the northern army, and I will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up, and his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beast of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. And he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the bat shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, and the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Stop there. So as you can see here in these pictures, we see land, animals, people, who are all affected by the swarming locusts, are also being affected by the prosperity that God brings, obviously. So Joel declared that all would be blessed, all of them, land, animals, and people, animals, trees, vines would prosper when when God sent the rain. The further we, by the way, if you think about this, um, some people are so city slicker in their thinking, they have a hard time picturing agricultural images of the Bible. So if you're one of those, just bear with me, okay? If, If you're not you understand the agricultural imagery here, you also please bear with me. But we need to be reminded that the further we move away from agricultural economy, the less 
you and I can understand how beautiful these images are. In ancient Israel, the people were dependent upon rain. It was a pretty arid place. It still is. They understood that life literally and physically came from that rain. If rain did not fall either in autumn or the spring, then guess what? If they didn't get those vital rains, either one of them, the crops would be totally decimated. But God here is promising both the latter and the early rains. And by latter and early rains, he's referring to the autumn rains and the spring rains, which is predominantly when they got the rain. So God's promising both here, which is a sign of his blessing and his prosperity upon them. So his blessings would once again flow literally from that rain and and would trickle down, if you will, to the land, to the plants, the animals, and eventually to his people. So in the end, the people would be restored to prosperity. Number three, God will reside with his people. What does salvation look like? What does salvation look like? Well, number one, or number three, God will reside with his people. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Put on top of this prophecy is another prophecy for what we would know as Pentecost. And you can read about that in the first part of the book of Acts. In other words, what's going on here is Joel is describing one thing that has since been fulfilled at Christ's first coming and another thing that has yet to be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. And if you think that's weird, you shouldn't because that often happens in the prophets. You'll see see one element that is fulfilled in Christ's first coming, but then there's other elements in the prophets that have yet to be fulfilled Uh, later on in Christ's second coming. Joel is no different from many of the other prophets in that regard. And so in the very first Christian sermon after the ascension of Christ, Peter quotes this very passage here when he's preaching. He quotes this passage from Joel about the Spirit's outpouring and the effect the Holy Spirit would have upon the people. And so at the very core of God's promised salvation is literally closeness with God himself. Salvation means experiencing the presence of God. Without God's presence, we have nothing. We certainly don't have salvation. The greatest blessing we have is God himself. And so if you don't understand what what I'm trying to say here, then my friend, please understand this. You're probably not saved. If you don't understand the importance of God's presence, 
particularly the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Bible says if you have the Spirit, you're His. If you don't, you're not. So, do you have a restored relationship with your Maker? Do you? Joel answers another question for us about this salvation. And so the third question is this. Why will God's people be saved? Why? Well, many people, many people today seem to think that God's going to save them because they deserve it. <laughs> they have this idea that God lets good people into heaven. And they have this, some people have this idea that God has these scales up in heaven, you know. And on this side, God's, God puts all my, my sin, my evil, bad things. And on this side, God puts all my good things. And then they, they tend to think that my good things, my good works outweigh my bad works. And because of that, God's going to let me into heaven. And because of that, you know, I get to heaven because I deserve it. That's how most of the world thinks. But this isn't a Christian idea. This is not a biblical idea. We are not saved because any moral, religious actions of our own. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says it's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to His grace through Jesus Christ alone. So salvation depends entirely on God. It's not on us. You can't get to heaven on your own work. Well, look at the most, probably the most famous verse in the whole book of Joel. It's probably chapter 2, verse 32, which, of course, uh, I hope you recognize coming from Romans chapter 10. Look at 2, verse 32, because it says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, take a look at the last phrase, because a lot of people, you know, they focus in and zoom in on that because it's coming from... Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. It's um, Romans 10, 13, but I think. Who's going to call on the name of the Lord here? Well, this verse answers the question, who's going to call on the name of the Lord? Because it says, For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So the answer to who will call on the name of the Lord is what? whom the Lord calls. The ones whom He calls are the ones who are going to call on Him. So my friend, do you understand? God calls those who call on Him. He does the acting first. Then we respond. Some people think it's the other way around. You know, I respond to God and then God, you know, includes me. No, that's not how it works, my friend. God calls you so that you can call on Him. He has His own purposes in salvation. Now look at chapter 2, verse 26. We'll be reminded of this truth here in verse 26, which says, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, for I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Do you see God's purposes there? Why does God save His people? Not because you deserve it. Why does God save His people? God saves His people in order to make Himself known. 
He is displaying His character to the nations. He's displaying His glory. That's why God does everything that He does. Why would God care so much about His people? Well, the simple answer is, I don't know. I don't know why God cares about any of us. None of us deserve His love. None of us. None of us deserve His mercy and grace. None of us deserve to go to heaven. So the answer is, I don't know, but for some reason, He's chosen to tie up His reputation with the welfare of His people. Ultimately, God saves His people here for His own name's sake. Now, some people don't like the sound of that because it squelches our pride, doesn't it? But what should God value more highly than Himself? Think about that. Is there anything greater than God? Is there anything better than God? Is there anything more beautiful than God? Is there anything better than God? And the answer is no, there is nothing. So it's right for him to value himself and his reputation and his glory. What is more worth than God? Nothing. Our fourth question is this, who will save you? Because you might be sitting here thinking, okay, you know, this is great, but what does this have to do with me? All right? Let's ask the question. Who will save you? We found out that sin's a problem. Sin is a problem universally. And God believes that every one of us needs to be saved from our sins. That's what the Bible says, because we, we have a very important question here. Do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you really believe that? You say, that's bad news. My friend, there is no good news without the bad news. And so we must ask the question, do I really believe that I'm a sinner? Because the Bible says we are. God sees our hearts, and here's what he says in Romans 3.23. On the screen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you really believe that? You should. That's what God believes. And so because of that truth that we're all sinners, it brings a problem. The problem is that sin brings a penalty. Romans 6.23, part A, says this, the wages of sin is death. And that's predominantly talking about the worst kind of death, which is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Now here's the good news. As I said, there's no good news without the bad news. But here's the good news according to the last part of Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't you love that little word, but? It shows a contrast. It's a comparison, if you will. There's, there's something, a good, the good news is there's a free gift that God gives, and it's eternal life. But it only comes through Jesus Christ and Him alone. So whose sins will be forgiven? Who will be saved? What about people who remain committed to their sins as opposed to being committed to God? Will they be saved? There's this idea out there that there's all kinds of ways to heaven. And as long as you're sincere, you know, there's all these paths that, read up, that lead up to God and to heaven, and if you're sincere, well, then you'll eventually get there. My friend, God doesn't believe that, and the Bible certainly doesn't say that. The reality is there's only one way, and Jesus said in John 14, 6, He is the way, and you cannot get to the Father except through Him. Now, Joel knows that not everyone's going to be saved. Joel is not a universalist. The Holy Spirit is not a universalist. 
after all, the Bible says that God is going to judge his enemies, and he will also be a refuge for his people. So who will be saved? It's God's people who will be saved. That's why Jesus came. You read Matthew chapter chapter 1. Jesus said, I have come to save my people. Who are God's people, and how can you be among them? Well, that's a good question then. In the book of Joel, God's people are the saved. All saved people are God's people. They are those who respond to God's word. So if you want to be included in God's people, then you have to respond to God's word. Because Romans says that faith comes by hearing the word of God. You have to respond to the word. The fact that God is sovereign does not rule out our responsibility to respond to the gospel. Yes, God does reign supreme over all of his creation. That's, that's the idea of sovereignty, but you're held responsible. Are you going to respond? That, that's the imagery you see there in verse 32 of chapter 2, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a response to God's word. How should we respond to God's word? Let me just give you two points and we'll be done, okay? Number one, and this, this applies for every one of us, everyone who hears this, how should we respond to God's word? Repent of your sins. Repent of your sins. Repentance is a message that Jesus and the apostles preached. It's found throughout the Bible. Uh, repentance means you acknowledge your sin as God sees it. Of course, God sees it as sin. It's wrong, and it's an offense to him. And then you have to forsake it. You regret it, and then you turn from it. You have a totally different view of sin than when you did as an unbeliever. Look how Joel exhorts the priest in chapter 1. Joel gives an exhortation to the priest here in chapter 1. Look what he says in verse 13. You see the idea of repentance here in verse 13. He says, Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. God never exhorts us when He shows us our sin to just continue on the same path and keep doing the same thing. That's not repentance. Now look at chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12, you see another imagery to repentance here. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent Leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children in nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Repentance is... Literally, it's a change of mind in regards to our sin. It's, but it's not just a change of mind, because as you change your mind, your heart will change 
and out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak, and you, your actions will follow, and your will will follow. So our hearts have to break. You see that word there, rend? Rend your hearts, God says. Break your hearts, God says. Our hearts have to break. Why? Because of our sin. Because we see ourselves as God sees us. We have done wrong, and we need to turn to the Lord. How can we do that? by giving attention to His Word, by heeding His warnings that we see in the Scriptures, and by confessing our sin. By the way, confession is to say the same thing that God says about our sin. All right? I mean, if you've lied, then you tell God, God, I, I lied, I didn't tell the truth. Would you please forgive me? All right? It's, it's saying the same thing. It's not saying, you know, uh, you know, I, it didn't quite, you know, I didn't quite do what you want me to do. That's too vague. God wants us to confess our sins by saying the same thing. Okay, so number one, you repent of your sins. And the last one is, believe God's word. Again, Joel 2, verse 32 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? Well, remember, Paul quotes it in, in chapter 10, verse 13. And when he quotes that verse, he uses call there synonymously with some other words, you see in Romans 10, and they are the words believe and trust. So call is synonymous with believe and trust. Therefore, to call on God is to literally trust in Him, to believe in Him, to put your faith in Him. It is to pray to Him, to own Him as your Lord, and to have Him as your Lord, and Savior, and Master. So we return to the original question, whom will God save? Whom will God save? God will save those who repent of their sins and those, as verse 32 says, who call on Him, who, who put their trust in Him, who believe in Him. God's going to save those who trust Him and, by the way, who trust no other, nothing else. So my question is, do you? Do you trust God? Do you believe God? Are you putting your faith in Christ alone? 